0: database. There are 18 major religions categories. That number seemed awfully low to me. Then I looked at the 18 that it had and, well, it, it's extremely skewed because it takes every belief system in the world that even claims to be somewhat Christian and lumps it under the category Christian. So, for instance, it would include Catholics and Protestants and Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and everything else that even mentions Christ to any certain degree. Now, when you separate the groups out that have fundamental theological differences, primarily in the area of salvation, you arrive at a figure over 4,000. 4,000 belief systems. Each with their own theology. Each with their own means of salvation. Now imagine, if you can, that you're standing in a hallway lined with doors. As far as you can see, there's 4,000 doors. And you have to choose which door to go through. One door leads to heaven and the rest lead to hell. How do you know which one to choose? Each have their own requirements, each have their own theology, each claims to reward those who enter. Many people claim that it really doesn't matter what door you enter, that all the doors really lead to the same place. They all eventually go to heaven. Ultimately, they say, it doesn't make a difference what one believes because whatever door you choose is unimportant. It's merely a personal choice. Think about the foolishness of such a statement. For instance, in 1970, British archaeologist John Allegro published a book claiming, get this, Jesus was a mushroom. He was serious. And he had a following for a while. It doesn't surprise us. It's on the end of the 60s. There were He believed that all the things that we read in the New Testament were the result of eating magic mushrooms. No wonder he had hippies coming to his church on Sundays. But people believe that, and all other kinds of bizarre things. So it's impossible to say, well, well, all beliefs are basically the same. It really doesn't matter what you believe. It seems that people have adopted this philosophy, though, that it doesn't really matter, and they're betting their eternity on it. Even to the point where it doesn't matter what I believe, it doesn't matter if I believe anything. It doesn't matter if I have any beliefs, eventually it will all end up in the same place. So does it matter what you believe? Does it matter which of those 4,000 doors you walk into? What if only one does lead to heaven and the rest lead to hell? Wouldn't you like to know which is the right door? I certainly would. Wouldn't you like to know how to identify that door? There's only one door that leads to eternal life. It's a door that's marked by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes, up, comes to the Father but through me. He said in John ten seven, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Throughout the New Testament, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the means of salvation is reiterated multiple times. There is no one, no honest reader who can read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and walk away saying it really doesn't matter what you believe or what door you walk into. Listen to some of the things, some of these statements from the New Testament. John 3 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. There's no other choice if you want to go to the kingdom. Romans chapter ten, verse nine If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible repeats it multiple times, that you must have Christ. It is through Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now the world seems to be content to believe that any number, any one of the 4,000 doors lead to God. And completely, it seems, and in often cases, vehemently opposed to the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. Perhaps you've talked to some of those people where you have told them about Christ, and they've kind of said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter, or or all doors lead to heaven. And when you force the issue that the Bible claims... That salvation is through Christ alone, people can get very hostile towards that. They're, they're fine to believe that there's a thousand different ways or four thousand different ways to get to Christ, but when you say no, there's only one, then apparently you're the enemy. Not only is there one door, and only one door, that door is narrow. And it requires sacrifice and humility in order to fit through it. There's not enough room for you and your ego to get through the door. There's not enough room for you and your pride to get through the door. Only those who humble themselves and repent can squeeze through the door. If a person does not enter through the narrow door, he cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore remains a citizen of the kingdom of the devil. You are going to be part of one kingdom or another. And everybody is born as into the kingdom of the devil. That's the point that Jesus is making when someone asks him on the road to Jerusalem, are there only a few people being saved? In Luke chapter... 13 and verse 22. It says, And as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51 tells us that Jesus had set his mind to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. And over the next 10 chapters through all the way through chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus is leaving the north, leaving the Galilee area. And and it's this this travel log all the way down to Jerusalem. It's approaching the time of Passover when he's going to be crucified and he's on a relentless pursuit to get down to Jerusalem in that time frame. But before he it's there, before he gets there, he's stopping in towns and villages all the way down and proclaiming the truth and proclaiming judgment in many cases. The time is quickly approaching for him to die as a substitutionary sacrifice plan that he and his father made before the creation of the world, before there was anybody here, before there was anything existed, before there was any sin, it was already determined that the son would give his life as a sacrifice for those who would believe. The religious and political leaders of Israel have rejected Jesus. They claim that he was in league with Satan. They rejected the things that he said they rejected the things that he did they blasphemed him they plotted against him and all along the journey jesus warns of the difficulty of being a follower of christ oh you've heard the the you know people giving the plan of salvation uh, you know just add jesus to your life it'll make your life better jesus says it's hard jesus said being a believer is hard it's not your best life now, regardless of how many copies a book like that sells. It's tough. Listen to some of the things. Just in the book of Luke in chapter 14, verses 7 through 14, he warns against pride. In the next, in the next section, verses 15 to 24, he speaks about the fact that those who reject his invitation will never come into his kingdom. In verses 25 through 30, he warns that would-be followers should count the cost before they choose to follow him. In chapter 15, he tells the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes that the prostitutes and the sinners will get to heaven before they will. In chapter 16, he gives a parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show the Pharisees and his disciples that it's not money that proves that you're right with God. The Pharisees laugh at this because that's what they believe. They're wealthy, therefore they're right with God. He then goes on to say in chapter 18 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. To which his disciples then ask the question, then who can be saved? If the wealthy in this world, the ones who seem to have it all in this world can't be saved, then who in the world can be? As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, stopping along the way, somewhere along that road, somebody asked Jesus the question that, Asked how many, that reveals there's only one way to heaven. How many get to go there? Is it just a few? And he answers the question by speaking of the narrow door, the closed door, and then the window. We start with the narrow door. Verse 23. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? The question's about the number. How many? Lot? Most? All? Few? Now the question was asked a number of times during the time of Christ. Various rabbis had their various answers to the questions. And some taught, some of the Jewish rabbis taught all Jews are going to go to heaven. If you're a Jew, if you're in the covenant, if you're a male and you've been circumcised, then you go to heaven. All good Jews go to heaven. Some all good Jews, some just all Jews, some only certain Jews. Just the really good ones, just the... Pharisee type Jews would go to heaven. Some would even go a little bit further. Some of the very sincere Gentile proselytes, those Gentiles that adopted Judaism and fulfill the, the, the rituals and the sacrifices, they might go to heaven as well. So the, whoever's asking the question, and we don't know who it was, whoever's asking the question of Jesus is probably wanted to get Jesus' spin on it. Jesus, what do you say? Do you say every Jew goes? Do you say only certain Jews go? Do you say Gentiles go as well? Who do you say goes to heaven? The answers range from the legalist to the almost universalist. Some would say all but the worst Jews go to heaven. Kind of similar to today when many people say all but the worst of society goes to heaven. Same questions often asked today, and similar answers are given. There are people today who believe in universalism, which means everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't matter who you are, you get to go to heaven. Some, you can take it the extreme opposite. Only 144,000 get to go to heaven. And that number was decided in the late 1970s, so sorry, the rest of you. If you were born in 1980 or beyond, uh, you don't get to go. There are those who teach that there's a hell and that people go there, but God will eventually save them too. If you grew up in a Catholic church, you probably were taught that you just go to purgatory for a time and then eventually you can get paroled out of there and go to heaven. Or if you have some rich relatives, they can buy you out sooner. The person asking Jesus wants to know. He doesn't get the answer he expects, I'm sure. Sure. And Jesus doesn't quite answer the question directly. He doesn't say, Yeah, there's only a handful of people. Or he doesn't say, No, it's a whole lot of people. He's given this parable earlier about the mustard seed, where the man threw the mustard seed to his garden and it grew into a large tree, and birds from all over the world came and nested in it. So that might have sparked the question well, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Or just a few? What does it mean? So, Jesus uses the question as an opportunity to speak of, of the offer of salvation that's given and the opportunity that's missed by many. So, in verse 24, he begins to answer the question, the end of verse 23, and he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. How many Jews has Jesus spoken to over the last three years that squandered the opportunity to enter the door? They heard the gospel message, they heard it repeatedly. They, he, they heard him say, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They heard him proclaim himself as the door, yet they rejected it. Just 10 verses later, down in verse 34. Jesus says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, but you would not have it. Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem later. He said, I wanted to save you. I wanted to draw you to myself, but you wouldn't have any of it. It's not, there were not Jews there saying, Hey, we want to follow you, but no, sorry, we're not elect, we can't do it. He said, I wanted to draw you, but you wouldn't come. And getting ready to send his disciples out on their short-term missions trip in Luke chapter 10, he says, but whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near." Jesus went on to say, I say to you that it's more tolerable for the day of Sodom than that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles have been performed in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. Jesus has made it clear. I offered the kingdom to these cities up in the north. I did many miracles there and they rejected it. If the same work had been done in Gentile pagan cities, they would have repented. Much like Nineveh did. So it will be worse for those cities that had all the light that Christ proclaimed than it will be for cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jesus says strive to enter into the narrow door. The word strive there is agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonize. It means to contend or to fight or to struggle. That it takes effort. Now this is important. Jesus is not saying salvation is a result of works. That we earn our way into heaven. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying it takes work to get there. It's not our effort that, that opens the door for us, but it does require something of us. It, it's a battle of self. It's a battle of pride. It's a battle of self-will. It's a battle of self-reliance. And when we are prideful and self-willed and self-reliant, that we will never seek the door that leads to salvation because we won't think we need it. It's the reason why Jesus said you need to humble yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's why he said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because a rich man is self-reliant. He looks at everything he has and he says, I can meet all my own needs. And he fails to see his greatest need, which is salvation, the forgiveness of sin. The reason why so many people think that all doors lead to God is because everyone wants to think that they're Right? They want to think whatever they believe is the correct belief. Whatever they feel is right is right. They think they've got it all figured out. And in their own pride and their own self reliance, they never seek Christ. Genuine repentance requires humility to confess that we've sinned against the holiness of God, that we are incapable of saving ourselves. That we are totally dependent upon divine righteousness. We strive against sin, or, or against self, against pride, in order to enter the narrow day the, the narrow door. Jesus says there in verse twenty four, enter through the narrow door. When he says the narrow door, he's not comparing a A six-foot-wide door to a two-foot-wide door. The two-foot-wide being the narrow door. This is more like a six-foot-wide door compared to an eight-inch-wide door. This is the entrance to Costco versus a doggy door. (laughs) You enter through the narrow door. The one that's going to be difficult. you got to leave all your baggage outside. Your pride. you got to leave your self-reliance out there because you can't fit with the rest of it. Jesus has spoken of the difficulty of getting through that door in other places, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 said, Jesus said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now when Jesus said that, it would have been shocking to everybody who heard him. Because in their minds, the Pharisees were the most righteous people in the land. So for Jesus to say to the average person, your righteousness must exceed theirs or you can't get to heaven, they ought to have been going, I guess I'll never make it. Now what they were missing was it's not their righteousness that would make them more righteous than the Pharisees. It's Christ's righteousness. It's imputed righteousness that would make them more righteous. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, Jesus said this, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus says this is how extreme it is if a part of your body is keeping you out of the kingdom, then get rid of that part of the body. It's better to walk through this world blind and lame than, and go to heaven than to miss heaven and be perfectly healthy. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, he said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never made it easy for people to decide to follow him. Jesus repeatedly said, you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. Sell everything you have and then come and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus never said, Hey, you don't have to change at all. Just come. Just come. Don't worry about it. You don't, there's no requirements here. To become a kingdom citizen was a demanding road. He goes on in the in the end of verse 24 and says, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Some will look for that entrance. They'll try to get in and they won't. So some will be shut out of the kingdom of God. Is that what he's saying? They wanted to make it, but they wanted to be saved, but they couldn't. Well, the reason they're not able to enter is not because they were not righteous enough. Wasn't because they didn't try hard enough. It wasn't because they didn't knock, seek, or act. The reason they're unable to enter is because of their unwillingness to repent. Go back to the beginning of this chapter. Verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why is it that some strive to enter the door, but they can't get in? It's because they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Only those who humble themselves and repent are able to enter through the narrow door. From the narrow door, Jesus goes to the closed door. Verse 25, Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Jesus continues the metaphor of the door. This time it's not a narrow door that's hard to get through. It's a closed door. It's impossible to get through. The picture is some kind of celebration going on in the house. Perhaps it's a wedding feast. People are milling around. Invited guests are coming in. Others are standing near the door, milling around outside. At some moment in time, at a, at a particular moment, a, the right time, the master of the house gets up from the inside and he walks over and he closes and locks the door. So at that moment, some realize, oh, oh wait a minute, we're, we're, we meant to go inside. They begin to knock on the door. They say, Lord, open up. They knock, call out, but it's too late. They squandered their opportunity. They hear from inside the house the master of the house saying, I don't know where you're from. And this isn't a problem of geography. He's not saying, I don't know what hometown you're from. I can't place your accent. That's not what he's saying. It's not a problem of geography, it's a problem of spiritual, spiritual heritage. I don't know where you're from. I don't know you. I don't know who you belong to. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. We read it earlier. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. The people start to complain. People outside, banging out the door, now they start complaining. We we did spiritual things. We In Matthew 7, they're saying, did, didn't we cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name and in your name do many wonderful works? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Here in Luke chapter 13, they say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in the streets. Jesus, we know who you are. We, we ate that bread. Remember when you made bread out of nothing and fish out of nothing? We ate that. Remember when we, we heard you teaching? You were in our town and we heard you. Jesus, we saw you Cause that blind man to see. We saw you. Make that lame man walk. We know who you are. They get more and more desperate. They're pleading with the Lord to open the door. Kind of like on Noah's day. As Noah had been preaching for dozens of years for people to repent, and they wouldn't repent as he builds the ark. And then all the animals go in and Noah and his family go in and God closes the door and then it starts raining for the first time ever. And then the water gets up to people's ankles. And it keeps going up. And it gets to their knees and they wade as fast as they can over to where the ark is and you can almost hear and by now the water's up to their waist and they're pounding on the side of the ark saying let us in. Let us in too late. The has already been closed. The opportunity to come in is long gone now. It's too late for those people once God closes the door. As the people become more desperate, then the refusal to open the door becomes even stronger. Look at verse 27, and he will say to them, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Your Bible may say workers of evil or workers of iniquity. This is a quote from Psalm 6, verse 8. The master of the house says, depart from me. Go away. You're a sinner. An unrepentant sinner. Most of those outside never saw themselves as evildoers, as sinners, as workers of iniquity. They thought they were just fine. They thought any, any door will get us into the kingdom. All doors are the same. We are we're sincere about what we believed. They never saw themselves as sinners in need of forgiveness. They never humbled themselves under the Mighty hand of God. They never submitted to God's divine standard. They assumed that God would just be pleased with whatever it is they did. The reality of 2 Corinthians 11.13 never hit them. For such men are false Apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These people thought they were righteous, thought they were holy, thought they belonged to God, and in reality they did not. Only those who humble themselves and repent are able to go through the narrow door and be saved. Only those who enter that narrow door through the blood of Jesus Christ can be saved. Then the scene shifts from the door to, to if you will the window verse 28 and in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and you will see abraham isaac and jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of god but you but yourselves being thrown out it's as if they went from banging on the door and and then they leave the door and they walk around they press their face against the window and they see what's going on in the kingdom yet they can't get in there themselves They see the celebration taking place inside. Suddenly they are mourning the fact that they're not in there. And they're wailing, they're weeping, they're gnashing their teeth. They're grieved as they look and they see the patriarchs. There's Abraham sitting at the table with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Those who are the foundation of the nation of Israel. These heroes of their faith and the ones that they were counting on to get them into the kingdom just because they were related. And yet they're outside. Excluded, forbidden from entering the banquet. They thought, oh, I'm a descendant of Abraham. And just like Isaac and Jacob, I would be at that table too. Then there's the prophets. Prophets throughout their history that pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel for its idolatry. Who proclaimed the coming Messiah. Men like Isaiah are there. Who said that when Messiah comes, He'll cause the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk. He'll raise the dead. And you can think back of all the times Jesus did those things. Showing Himself to be Messiah. Then there was when Isaiah said, that He'd be wounded for our transgressions. He'd be pierced for our iniquities. How the Messiah would suffer and die because of our sin. Or prophets like Zechariah, who said that God would dwell among His people. Or He said in Zechariah 12 that the Messiah would be pierced. They press their noses against the window. They see the giants of the faith sitting inside. Yet they themselves are being dragged away and cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 29 says, And they will come from the east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The banquet is full not only of Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's also filled with New Testament saints, which are primarily Gentiles. Gentiles from all over the world. Every compass direction you can think of will recline at the table. This has always been part of God's plan. This wasn't something new Jews didn't catch it until it started taking place, but Psalm 107 verses 1 through 3 said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He who has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, The name, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Gentiles have come into the kingdom from all over, from every nationality, every tongue, every ethnicity. They've been welcomed at the table of the Lord as full-fledged members of the kingdom. Yet those who rejected him are excluded. Even though they were raised in Israel, even though they were circumcised, even though they were fulfilling the, what they thought was the requirements of the law, they're excluded. Gentiles being part of the kingdom didn't fit with the theology of the average Jew. They certainly didn't believe that they would get in and they would be that the Gentiles would get into the kingdom and the Jews would be excluded. They were God's chosen people. They believed as long as they were part of the Abrahamic covenant, they were they were golden. The problem is they lacked the faith of Abraham, which was always the requirement. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. They were shocked when they saw the door was closed and they were outside, not allowed in. They're dismayed when the Lord said to them, I don't know you. And they're devastated when the command is given to depart and the Lord calls them evildoers, workers of iniquity, and sends them away. They were the beneficiaries to be the first to be given the good news. They saw Christ. Yet they thought being a good Jew was enough and they were wrong. In a very similar way today, there are many who claim to be Christians but have actually never entered into a relationship with Christ. I want to speak primarily to our teenagers right now and our young kids in here. Many of you have grown up in church. You can't remember your life without it. You've been in church since you were born. You have Christian parents. Raised you. Taught you about Christ. Prayed for you. Prayed with you. Taught you to pray. Most of or all of your friends go to church. You speak fluent Christianese. You know all the Christian lingo. You can quote the books of the Bible in order. You know many of the songs by heart. You've memorized dozens, maybe even hundreds of verses. You can recite facts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is important. None of that makes you a Christian. None of those things make you a Christian. No one is a Christian because they have Christian parents. No one is a Christian because they're raised in a Christian home. No one is a Christian because their grandpa's a pastor. No one's a Christian because they go to church. No one's a Christian because they go to a Christian school or a Christian co-op. No one is a Christian because they go to youth group every week. And no one is a Christian because their parents tell them they are or their parents want them to be. If you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and confess your sin to Him, then you're not a Christian. It is an individual, one-on-one relationship that you must have. And no one can make you have it. I can't give it to you. Your mom and dad can't give it to you. Your youth pastor, your Sunday school teacher can't give it to you. You must receive Christ on your own. And in my life, I've seen far too many teenagers who were raised in church all their lives and memorized all the verses and knew all the lingo grow up to walk away from Christ because they never knew Him. And they think they're Christians. Just like those Jews. Who are banging on the door saying, Let me in, Lord. They thought because they grew up Jews, they get to go to heaven. They were God's chosen people. Of course we get to go. And unless you receive Christ on your own, one day you're going to be banging on the door saying, Lord, let us in. I grew up in church. I got all the awards they give for memorizing verses. I was on the Bible quizzing team. And unless you repent, you will hear. Depart. You worker of iniquity. You sinner. I don't know you. And you will be dragged away into outer darkness. Where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, forever away from the presence of God. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Verse 30 says, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. To those Jews, it was shocking to see those Gentiles in there because they're the last, yet they seem to be equal citizens of the kingdom. They're the last to come, yet they're equal. They're first. And vice versa. A great reversal takes place. The Jews were first. The Gentiles were last. Well, how many will be saved? Lord, are just a few being saved? Well, the answer is... All who enter the narrow gate are saved. And you enter that narrow gate by calling upon the name of the Lord. By repenting and confessing Him as Lord and Savior. Jesus didn't come to make it easy. He never preached a watered down gospel or easy believism, and all you have to do is say a prayer. And if you just say a prayer, then you're in. It's not that simple. John MacArthur said this, quote, Speaking of Jesus, he made them either feel bad enough to repent or furious enough to reject, end quote. And that's where we are today. You either repent or you reject. And only those who humble themselves and repent can go through the narrow door and be saved. So it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter who your Sunday school teacher is. What matters is your relationship with Christ. And if you don't know him, if you're not sure, please, please talk to me. Talk to your Sunday school teacher. Talk to one of the youth leaders. So we can help you be sure. So you'll get through that narrow door before it's closed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you made a way for us to be saved to begin with. Father God, you didn't have to do that. We were sinners on our own right and deserve your wrath. Deserve your punishment. Yet God, in your grace and your mercy, you made it possible for us to be saved. For that, we are eternally grateful. And Father, I pray for everyone here, particularly our young people. The children who are here, the teenagers who are here. Most who have grown up their whole life in church. Father, may they not trust in that heritage as a means of salvation. But Father, may your Spirit show them that they need a personal relationship with you. Father, may they come to saving faith today if they're not saved. Father, would your Spirit reveal to the young and old alike if they need Christ, to be if they need to be saved, if they need Christ, they need to repent. Father, slay the pride that keeps people from turning to you Give them the spirit of humility so that they may come, be saved. Father, we know our time is short. We know that door will close one day. Father, let no one here delay in coming to saving faith. And let us not delay in proclaiming the truth of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Father, let us never be deceived into the belief that it doesn't matter what people trust in as long as they are sincere. Father, help us to remember it matters. There's one way, there's one truth, and that's through Jesus Christ and His shed blood. Father, use us to share the truth of the love of Christ with a lost and dying world. Father, let your truth be proclaimed for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.